passage this morning is from Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian, Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and, that, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as, I, as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The word of the Lord. Be to God. This summer, we're considering the life of Joseph by way of review. We've seen that Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, the oldest son of Rachel and the most beloved of Jacob. Jacob showers him with favoritism which disrupts the family, causes his brothers to hate him, and they intend to kill him. God intervenes, and rather than Joseph being killed, he's sold into slavery, and through that process ends up being bought by Potiphar, a, uh, an Egyptian military leader, very high up, think, uh, think uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Secretary of State. This is the role that Potiphar plays, and Joseph finds himself uh, there as we enter into chapter 39 of Genesis. And one of the things we said last week that we need to, keep, uh, need to keep in the back of our minds is that Joseph is peculiar. It's a peculiar story in the book of Genesis. Why? 
Joseph is not a patriarch. Right? He's not one of the fathers of Israel. So we wouldn't necessarily expect him to get attention for that reason. He's also not an ancestor of Jesus. So like David, who gets a lot of attention in part for that reason, uh, he doesn't fit that bill either. And yet, Joseph receives more stage time in the book of Genesis than any other figure. Right? He gets the most attention. Why does Joseph, rather than the others, get so much attention when he doesn't fit either of these roles? Well, God seems to be doing a couple of things. One is he's beginning to expand Israel's horizons in terms of what it means for uh, Israel, you know, the descendants of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. That was God's promise to Abraham. And now Joseph's going to be salvation, not simply to Israel, but to the whole known world as this horrible famine will come upon them. But secondly, we see special moments in the Old Testament where God seems to uh, choose to write a story that in a very special way foreshadows the story of Jesus. It's almost as if uh, God is doing a slow revelation of what and who Messiah will need to be in order both to prepare um, the people of God for his arrival, but also to, um, to shape the contours of that story for when God actually takes on flesh. And so for those reasons, those two reasons, I think Joseph uh, receives a lot of attention in the book of Genesis in somewhat a surprising way. Now, that is not the only surprising aspect to the story of Genesis. There's one, uh, there's another glaring surprise to the story of Joseph, but you almost have to be reading it in the context of Genesis to see it. Because as you read through the lives of the patriarchs, God is showing up quite frequently. Shows up in dreams, he shows up to wrestle people, he shows up to have conversations with individuals, he shows up to debate his future plans with the patriarchs. Uh, quite frequently, over and over again, you see God show up in a personal way to, uh, to the characters in the story, to the figures in Genesis. But when you get to, jo uh, to Joseph, that stops. God isn't showing up in the same way anymore. Now the author will tell you what God's doing in the background, but Joseph is not experiencing God in the personal way that the patriarchs did. There's been a shift. It's almost as if God has chosen to hide himself uh, from Joseph. Right? He's not letting himself be known in the, in the immediacy that he did in the stories that immediately precede Joseph. And so what we want to wrestle with as we enter into chapter 39 of Genesis is the hiddenness of God. Why is it that God chooses to begin more so to hide himself from Joseph? Why would God choose to hide himself at all? We're going to spend most of today considering the nature of God's hiddenness. We all experience this. And when we go through something, we say, where is God? What could God's purposes be in the midst of this? Right? Where is he to be found? He seems silent. And once we spend most of our time considering the nature of God's hiddenness, we'll also consider Joseph's temptation in light of the hiddenness of God and his faithfulness in light of the hiddenness of God. Let's first make sure that we have a grasp of the hiddenness of God. It's an important uh, theological concept, and it's one that has been um, significantly discussed in the history of the church. Now, just to make sure that we understand what we're talking about, notice that 
God is being mentioned frequently in the course of Genesis 39. If you look at verses 3 through 5, Joseph has arrived at Potiphar's house, and the author tells us that the Lord is with him and that the Lord brings him great success. Joseph is thriving as a result of the Lord's presence, so much so that Potiphar recognizes, oh, your God is special and he's helping you. I'm going to promote you. And Joseph works up through the ranks until he's the manager of all of Potiphar's estate. He has the highest position within the household. And, as if that weren't enough, even after he's falsely accused and thrown into prison, if you look at verses 23 and 24, or 22 and 23, excuse me, there, again, in prison, God is with Joseph and grants him success, and he will move up and take over management of the prison. There's no question that God is present in the midst of this story and causing Joseph's success. But where would you look, where would you point to show me where Joseph has an experience of God? And it's not there. God isn't showing up in some personal way for Joseph. The author is telling the reader, this is what's happening. But Joseph is going through this and is not having a personal revelation or disclosure on God's part of what he's up to. God has chosen to hide himself from Joseph. And so we see God is present at work, but not obvious. His presence isn't particularly known in a way that it has been known to Joseph. We see that God is hidden, but we cannot conclude that when God is hidden, that he is absent. Or that when we could not discern his work, that he isn't working. Right? God's very much at work, though Joseph can't see it. Now this notion, the hiddenness of God, was something that weighed very heavily upon Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. In fact, of all theologians, Luther probably contributed most to a theology of the hiddenness of God. Luther, uh, this idea of God's hiddenness weighed on him in a very personal way because he was desperate to have a very intimate and authentic experience of God. So as a monk practicing rigorous aestheticism, he would do whatever he thought would bring him into closer proximity with God, including uh, hurting his own body. Right, climbing the stairs of St. Peter's on his knees until his knees were raw and it was difficult to walk. Whatever he thought might mortify his flesh, put his old self to death, he would do that so that he might draw near to God. And he, Luther eventually comes to the question, how is it possible where he's trying really, really hard but not experiencing God and continuing to find him hidden, says, how does an unrighteous person stand before a holy God? How can this happen? And as Luther weighs this and, and processes this, he begins to realize that God isn't actually the first person in the story to hide himself. Boys and girls, in the story of redemption, who is the first person to hide themselves? It's a real question. Adam and Eve, right? They're the first people, right, ashamed of what they've done, they clothe themselves, which is a form of hiding, and then they recede into the background of the garden, hoping that God won't discover them. Now, Luther points out that the ironic part about Adam and Eve hiding themselves is they are having to hide themselves because they believed, they were persuaded by the serpent, that God had hidden something from them. 
that God had been selfish and said, I'm going to preserve some aspect of goodness and happiness and blessing that's off limits to you, right? And so they believed that God was hiding something from them and pursued it, and as a result, they would fall and have to hide themselves. Now it's as a result of the fall, right, that God begins to hide himself. It says God must at that point begin to hide himself from humanity because humanity participates or is taken up with our first parent's sin, which is to believe that God's blessing can be hidden from us and found in a place where he has not disclosed. In other words, Adam and Eve decided, oh, I bet God's real blessing exists in a place where we're not allowed to be. It exists outside of his word, outside of his revelation. And so Luther says it's our disposition now to believe that there is some blessing outside of God's word, outside of his revelation, that we will constantly look to be satisfied in somewhere where God has not said we would be satisfied. Therefore, God must hide himself lest we, uh, we find ourselves uh, experiencing some blessing in the wrong place. So Luther says there's two reasons God hides himself. Number one is so that you won't find him in the wrong place. You might pursue him in a certain direction. We'll talk about more a practical example in a minute. But God says, I can't let you find me there because you would, you would end up upside down and you would find blessing in the wrong place. But Luther says the other reason is that God doesn't allow himself to be found and hides himself is so that you will find him in the right place. Right? Which ultimately for Luther and ultimately for Scripture is where God chooses to reveal himself, which is in the Son. We find God first and foremost as he chooses to make himself known, which is in Jesus Christ. When we're finding God or pretending to find God in other places, we're only fooling ourselves and not wrestling with his hiddenness. So that's all a bit esoteric. How might that really play out in life? I have a friend uh, named Charles, and he's been, uh, he's been in ministry longer than I have. He's pastored a number of uh, good and successful churches, but he's had trouble with his, at home uh, with his children, particularly with his adolescent son. Now, what you need to know about Charles is Charles didn't really have a dad growing up, and Charles always looked forward to being a dad. And when he became a dad, he said, I, uh, this is going to be the most important role of my life. I'm not going to let ministry or the church cloud it out. I'm going to pour into my children and raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I'm going to be, in every sense, a great father. And so Charles does just that. He really does pour himself into his kids. Now, when his son gets uh, to be about 14, he starts to uh, be rebellious in significant ways. He starts to wander. Uh, he starts to experiment with drugs. Eventually, it will get to a point in later years that uh, he will disappear for substantial periods of time, causing his parents incredible heartache uh, before returning. Now, Charles would say what? Where is God in this? Right? How can God be allowing my son to go through this? And uh, does he not recognize what I have done and invested in my child? He's not honoring any of it. All right. Now, what's Charles doing? If God showed up and simply said, 
oh yes, sorry, wasn't paying attention, right? You get to find blessing wherever you want. And here's your son, no more drug problems, he'll never run away again, and I always speak to you with respect and thank you every day for how good a father you were. Right? Now that might be the worst possible thing for Charles. Because we have to consider Charles' heart. Why is Charles investing in his son the way that he does? Well, one reason is certainly that he hates his dad. Right? Every day that Charles pours into his child, he exercises contempt towards his own father and says, you weren't there for me. You did nothing. Right? I'm a better father than you. Right? And every day he can say that to himself. So he finds part of his identity and part of his significance in the way that he cares for his child. But he also might find his identity in, this, in the child himself. Say, this, this is my, my uh, trophy. This is my significance. Right? My, uh, my identity is bound up with the success of my child. If my child is worthy of praise and adoration by those around me, then I am more significant. If my child doesn't do well, that's a commentary on me. So again, if God just simply showed up there and affirmed that, then Charles would continue to find his identity in his son rather than in Christ. Do you see? God's hiding himself is a blessing. It's to make sure that Charles and you and me don't find blessing in the wrong place because if we found blessing there, we might continue to return to it and it might ultimately cause our death. And when we don't find blessing, it makes us keep looking for it. Charles knows, right? He had to come to the place says, okay, something's not working in my life because my son's a mess and I'm a mess and my family is falling apart. So I must be looking for blessing in the wrong place. And because he didn't find blessing the way he thought it would work, it caused him to keep looking until he actually found it in Christ. It's the grace of God to keep moving in the right direction. And this, of course, is what we see happening in the life of Joseph. Right? God is, is not entirely present and his ways are not entirely clear. And Joseph must uh, live in the midst of this story that unfolds around him in a very difficult way. I mean, one of the really hard parts about reading the story of Joseph, uh, which you should be doing, and you should also be trying to always put yourself in the shoes of Joseph at various times and saying, what would it have been like to be Joseph? Now you've got Joseph, he starts off kind of as a spoiled brat, and then, uh, but gets, is going to be put to death. So he, he gets put, laid down low. And then he gets sold into slavery. Well, that's a little bit better. And then he rises to a high position in Potiphar's house, only to be falsely accused and thrown back into prison. So he falls way back down. But then he meets, right, in the coming weeks, if you know the story, he'll meet uh, the cupbearer and the baker uh, to the pharaoh, to the king. And they'll say, we're going to remember you. And says, finally, Joseph, right, a high point, I'm going to get out. And then the next verses say they forget about him. And Joseph spends more years in prison. And it's up and down and up and down, right? Raised up and dashed against the rocks. This is Joseph's story. And all while God isn't being overt, and he doesn't really say, this is what I'm up to. This is why I'm doing this. And Derek Kidner, one of the com lead commentators on Genesis, has uh, a fascinating comment on kind of this process in Joseph's life. He says, what you see is an alternating uh, frost and sun from God 
on the life of Joseph. We'll also see it on the life of his brothers when they show up again at the end of the story. But you see that there's a certain warmth and affection and reprieve for Joseph to be followed by a certain degree of frost in his life. Sun and frost, sun and frost, sun and frost. And Kidner says it's because God is intending to break his stony heart. He's making him such the man that he needs to be not only for the salvation of the known world, right, but to be the person that God intends him to be. You know, uh, just, I find this a fascinating aside, and we'll talk about it in the weeks to come, but people tend to think about the pinnacle of Joseph's life as uh, being the reconciliation with his brothers and that he relieves the famine uh, and saves everybody. Jewish commentators never see that as the pinnacle of Joseph's life. In fact, Joseph is a very controversial character in Jewish interpretation leading up to the New Testament. The reason is, A, he starts as a spoiled brat, but B, when he goes to Egypt, he becomes Egyptian. And the language is pretty clear that Joseph uh, takes the clothing and the posture and the makeup of an Egyptian, an Egyptian wife, and for Jewish commentators in the years that would follow, that was a scandalous move, right? He was not being faithful to the degree that he became Egyptian. And interestingly, and when you get to the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, and Joseph is honored amongst the greats of faith, he's not honored for anything, for all this, you know, we have this huge chunk of Genesis about his life. What is he honored for? He's honored for the decision that he makes at the end of his life that his bones should not rest in Egypt, but that he should be carried back to his father's homeland. And that, I think we'll see in weeks to come, is really the pinnacle of Joseph becoming the person who loves and depends on Yahweh in the way that he has desired him to. It doesn't come necessarily at the salvation, you know, the exercise of his uh, power to save those who are suffering from the famine and the reconciliation with his brothers. That's part of the story. But even then, you still have the sun and the frost, which is making him someone that says, yes, at the end of his life, you will finally say, uh, and it's a great moment because... Um, Joseph, of all people, puts forward his eldest to be blessed by Jacob. And Jacob turns around and blesses his, the younger son. And Joseph's like, no, 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 you've got it wrong, even though he's the younger son. And, uh, and at that point, you see, you see kind of Joseph become the man who says, oh, Yahweh will do what Yahweh will do, and I will find uh, my life and my rest in him. And so that, this is the road that's going, but you have to see that it, it's going to take lots of sun and lots of frost in alternating quantities to crack him. He's got a hard heart. Right? And it's only over time that this makes him into something different. Someone who really depends and looks, uh, trusts in God, even in the midst of God's hiddenness. Now, we begin to see this happening. I don't think we would have seen it at all in chapter 37, but temptation comes upon Joseph. And temptation often comes when God seems hidden. It is a ripe time for temptation and for us to suffer. Hmm? Joseph uh, stands strong. Potiphar's wife continues to invite him, tries to steal his kisses, and Joseph says, no. No, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. He appeals to, his, uh, to her husband, Potiphar, my master has entrusted me with all these things. He's raised me up. The only thing that he said is off limits is you. How could I do this against him? But that isn't, um, 
that isn't Joseph's ultimate argument. In verse 9, he says, how could I do this against God? The real reason that Joseph won't go down this road, and you can imagine, right, the temptation, the despair he's experienced, the self-pity, the disappointment in God. Right? Not only that, but he suffers. Verse 6, he's handsome in form and appearance. Pastor Zach has considered this a personal life verse. And apparently he's got it hanging over his mirror in his bathroom and finds encouragement in this story. <laughs> so, all these reasons that Joseph could go down this road. Right? You might even sympathize with it. You might even say, Haven't you, hasn't Joseph earned a little break? Potiphar's away on a military campaign for the next nine months. He won't be back. Goodness, who's going to know? He says, no, not against God. Now, the reason this is so important is because it's a biblical picture of how we manage temptation. And it's important because the world approaches temptation in such a way that uh, it gives you the notion that simply by the exercise of your will, you can overcome temptation. That is a ridiculous notion, right? Even in the last few years, there are numerous uh, books, uh, some of which I've read, that are all about habit formation. And there, there's a lot of talk right now that says, listen, if you want to change some aspect of your life, you have to decide what that is. You have to uh, focus your energies and your intent. And you start to make, you set out a course of small changes and you reward yourself for those changes and that will develop new habits. Now, some of that is worthwhile, okay? But by and large, right, it's never going to work. And it's why people who try to give up any number of addictive substances or try to lose weight, or any of these courses, uh, constantly fail and return to the place from which they've started. Why? Because your will right, is never going to control your affections. Right? Your affections always dictate your will. If our affections followed our will, then we would all always be doing whatever we thought was best. Right? Because I go home after a stressful day and I say, I should eat uh, a chicken breast and some broccoli. That would be best for me. I would feel the best, and it would, be, it would keep my weight down. But after a stressful day, my affections say, I don't think so, right? What really is best for you is uh, cookies and ice cream, right? Now, that would, if my will dictated my affections, I could just say, down affections, back up. It's chicken, breast, and broccoli all the way. We don't work that way. We're not rational creatures, right? Our affections drive our will and overcome it, which is why you'll always do what you love the most, which is why it's so important to see Joseph here in the midst of this severe temptation saying, at the end of the day, I can't do this because I'm committed to Yahweh. My love is for him. Now, the only way that you can actually be there and the only way that you stay there is to be persuaded and to dwell upon his love for you. Right? To love Yahweh is to be, understand that you're possessed by his love. It's to sit in the Gospels. It's to think about that you're, to realize that you're not really a very lovable person and God has pursued you from eternity and given up, right? Jesus the Son has given up divinity eternally so that you could be redeemed. We cannot possibly fathom the depth of that sacrifice. 
or the depth of that love. But as you begin to think, this is how much God loves me in Jesus Christ, God is going to bring this story to its proper conclusion. The more confidence you have in that love than whatever's besetting you on the outside, as we, we can look as an example to Joseph, you say, I'm going to trust in that love rather than to seek love somewhere else. My affections are going to remain placed on Yahweh because I know that I am the object of his affections. And that is what facilitates strength in the midst of temptation. And in this last short note, it's also what facilitates faithfulness, right? Joseph uh, enters one of the hardest aspects of obedience, right? Because he's faithful. He says no. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do the right thing. And what does he get for doing the right thing? Prison. Falsely accused, no trial, right? Potiphar's wife decides, I really hate you that you will not bend. And so I have contempt for you, and I will see you consumed. I'm going to make up a lie and have you thrown into prison. And here's Joseph, again, right, at the bottom, right, suffering for having been righteous, suffering for having obeyed. Now, what a great opportunity, again, for self-pity and say, Yahweh, you're not really worth it. You, you just, I obey, and you're supposed to do something. But Joseph's beginning to develop a depth where he understands the story must be going somewhere because he doesn't despair in the midst of prison. And again, God is with him and helps him to find success even in the midst of being in prison in the eyes of the prison garden. And again, we see the sun and the frost coming, alternating, cracking his heart, making him new as the sun and the frost comes and cracks your heart and makes you new. As you think about this notion and think about your place uh, in the midst of your own stories of sun and frost, right, understand what God is doing. Tim Keller tells a great story uh, that illustrates this point about a lumberjack. And the lumberjack goes and to fell a tree and starts chopping it down. He sees that a beautiful bird has nested in the tree and is intending to have a family in the tree. And he thinks, man, I don't really want to destroy the bird and the nest, what should I do? Well, he continues to chop. The tree is being banged at the base, and the bird thinks, well, this is no good. I'm moving, and we'll set up shop somewhere else. Well, the lumberjack proceeds immediately to that tree and begins to chop it down. The bird says, okay, I can move again, and he moves again to another tree. But the lumberjack pursues the bird to each and every tree Knocking it down, and the bird thinks, what is this lumberjack's problem? There is a forest of trees. He seems to have a vendetta for me. Until the bird, fed up, finally says, fine. I'll go and I'll build my nest in the rock. What is the hiddenness of God intended for you? It's that you would build your nest in the rock. It's that you wouldn't find blessing in the wrong place. And that you would always pursue and seek out blessing in the right place which is ultimately, right, that you would build your house on Christ himself. In the midst of the sun and the frost, in the midst of the hiddenness of God, run to Jesus Christ. Right? He beckons you that you would build there and find your strength there. Let's pray. Father, your grace is mysterious, and we... 
we often find ourselves scratching our heads at your providence. As much as we scratch our heads, uh, we have to think about how much Joseph must have scratched his head. We thank you that you are willing to interrupt our lives and that you love us enough to both hide yourself and to expose us both to sun and to frost. We are so easily lulled uh, by the Turkish delights of this world. Would you continue to wake us up and to turn our eyes and our hearts toward you? And would you help us not to be so foolish as to pretend there is blessing anywhere else but in Christ? It's to him that we run now. We pray that as we sing our praise and give you glory, that you would meet us and give us more of your Son. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.